focusing on what God says because the rest of the week we're going to hear a bunch of stuff that other people say and it's good to have a frame of reference with the Word of God. So if you haven't been with us, we're in a series called Verses for Life where every week we pick a verse or a few verses that I think are so important, so iconic that if you lived your life by that verse, you'd have a much better life. And I encourage people to memorize the verses and meditate on them at least throughout the week. You may find one that you're like, that's one I want to take with me the rest of my life. But the verse that we're going to look at today is one that, it's a really popular verse. In fact, on the internet, of all the verses that, that get looked up on the internet, uh, this is the number two verse. Number one is John 3.16. We'll get to that eventually, but um, this one is Jeremiah 29.11. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn over to Jeremiah 29.11. It's that verse, though, that you've seen it embroidered on doilies for a long time and put on posters and pictures. It's, for I know the thoughts that I have for you, says the Lord. Thoughts of, of, of good and earth, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And so, who wouldn't like that verse? I mean, when in your life is there a time when you had more of a desire to, is there a reason for hope? Is there a reason for me to experience, you know, peace? And so, naturally, we look at this verse and go, oh, I need that. But this verse isn't quite the way that we usually interpret it to be. And as we saw a couple weeks ago with Philippians 4.13, I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Quite often an iconic verse is iconic because it's been misunderstood and taken out of context. But then when you understand it in the context and you study the, 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 that which surrounds it, it can be even more amazing and more useful. And I think this is one of those verses. So to understand Jeremiah 29, 11, you have to understand its context. Who was it written by? Who was it written to? What were those times like? And how does that fit with the text around the verse? Um, and so we'll take a look at all of those. The historical context, first of all, um, Jeremiah is writing this. Jeremiah was an old, crusty prophet who was down in Jerusalem writing to the children of Israel who were in exile. Um, now, if you consider the, the history of Israel, you know, they had like initially 12 tribes of Israel. Saul was their first king. David was their second king. They got even better. That was around 1000 BC as David came along. After David, Solomon, which that was probably the greatest, most magnificent period of time for Israel. Solomon built this majestic temple and they were, you know, mostly at peace, very prosperous. So those were the glory years, were the times of Solomon. Now, after Solomon died, all of a sudden the 12 tribes split up. Jeroboam became the leader of the 10 northern tribes and the Rehoboam became the leader of 
the southern tribe of Judah, along with the tribe of Benjamin that went with them. So the nation was split from that point on. And that was the beginning of a, certainly a deterioration for Israel. They would never become who they were under Solomon. Even to this day, Israel is not, most people who are Jewish, they aren't even sure what tribe they're from, much less what area of the country should be theirs. But so this was the beginning of the end when the northern tribes split off and then they went off into captivity by the Assyrians. So we're talking about 732 BC when 10 of the 12 tribes are captured by the Assyrians. The tribe of Judah had a couple of fairly righteous kings and they hung in there for a while, you know, 100 years or so longer. Then Josiah, who was the last good king in Judah, when he died around 610 BC, 609 BC, then pretty soon the southern tribes really started to deteriorate. By that time, the Babylonian kingdom under Nebuchadnezzar was beginning to grow. They conquered the Assyrians, but also they had a view to make a pathway heading down toward Africa, toward the Mediterranean and everything. And so, so the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, first came down in about 605 BC, and he started to, I mean, they were taxing the Jews. They still let them have their king. They just had no power. But he took some of the best and the brightest. So Guys like 605 BC was when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, other gifted young men were taken captive by the Babylonians, carried back up into Babylon, trained in the Babylonian educational system. So what he thought, if I'm going to take these people over, the best thing is if I get their smartest, their best and brightest young people who still have, you know, they can still be formed in terms of who they are, I can then run them all. Now, that's what people always do when they want to conquer you. They try to get your kids first. It's one of the reasons why we see in our world today, why is all the crazy weird stuff popping up in the schools with the kids? And this is why. If you can, you know, the, like a guy like Daniel, who ended up becoming the head magi in Babylon, he was really gifted. So if I can get him to tow our line and follow our agenda, then everyone else will be easy to take. Now, today and back then, that always backfires. If you think that you can, through academia or whatever, that you conquer the smartest people and then you're going to win the war, never happens. It happens for a while. Eventually, you look at our day and age now. Yeah, the stuff that they're telling them in education is just completely ridiculous. But smart people eventually, as they think about it a while and use critical thinking skills, they're going to understand, oh, there's a difference between men and women. Animals even know that, you know? And so you, you can try to win that way, but revolution is only short term when you think that you can convince the smartest people first. But that's what Nebuchadnezzar tried to do. Now, eventually, he began to bring more and more people up to Babylon to orient them. So 
young families and things like that. Ultimately, you know, he ended up, uh, you know, in 587 BC, destroying Jerusalem, destroying Solomon's temple. Basically, that was it. Now they have no rallying point. Now here they are. You know, they have, the Babylonians have completed their subjugation of Israel. Israel essentially didn't exist anymore. Now, as they were taking people captive, there were some people who weren't worth capturing. Jeremiah was one of those guys. An old, crusty guy, a prophet who was cranky. He struggled with depression. He was like, what threat is he? So that was the kind of guy who got to stay down in Jerusalem living in the rubble. Well, he was prophesying, and he's called them exilic. There are prophets who are pre-exilic, before the exile, post-exilic, after the exile. He's one of the exilic prophets because he's prophesying during the exile. So it's an ugly job, but somebody has to do it. So Jeremiah is down there doing this. Well, the Babylonian kingdom ended up collapsing. After Nebuchadnezzar was gone and they were kind of up and down, then Belshazzar took over, and you remember Daniel came, he saw a hand, a hand writing on the wall, and Daniel came in and told him what it meant. It means your number is up, your kingdom has been divided, and that night, the Medes, and then in conjunction with the Persians, came in and conquered the Babylonian Empire. So now the Jews who are there are now subservient to the, the Medes and ultimately the Persians. Well, they, they were probably like, wow, this is great, except things weren't any better. When you take one power-hungry group out of power and you put another power-hungry group into power, it doesn't necessarily improve things. So Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den under Darius the Mede. God does things, keeps him going. He, we ultimately don't know how his life ended, but eventually under the Persians, God somehow got through to Cyrus, who ended up, you know, um, in 538 uh, BC, making a declaration that if Jews want to go back down to Israel, they're able to do that. Not many of them did. It had been a long time, and the place was a wreck. And you know, I don't know if you've ever gone back to the place where you grew up. And for many of us, like you go back and go, ugh. I'm glad I got out of here. That would have been their attitude. Most of them were up there. They were fine where they were living. But some people went down. They were, at least Cyrus gave them the okay. So then technically you can say, well, sort of their captivity is over with. But it really wasn't. It, it, it took, in 445 BC was when Jeremiah had, or Nehemiah, I mean, had then asked permission to go help because the place was a dump. And then Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, they ended up going down there, starting the rebuilding of the temple and beginning to rebuild the houses and the city walls and all that stuff. So all of, all of that to say this, the captivity that was going on at the time of Jeremiah 29 happening, it was just a tiny part of everything that they would ultimately have to endure. And we, when we talk about 70 years of captivity, and it's referenced in this chapter, it's really, it wasn't really 70 years of captivity. It was, 
in some ways, it was a captivity that started again with in, in, the, in the 8th century BC and that continued on indefinitely. But at the very least, before they could even go back and rebuild the temple, rebuild the city, even though then by that time they were under the power of the Roman Empire. And again, here they are. It's like, you know, it's, it's just, you just switch dictators. But, you know, at the very least, you're talking about 150, 200 years of really where you are slaves, that's your only option. So that's who Jeremiah is writing to. Now, if you just look at verse 11 and you hear God saying, man, I know what I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking of peace. You know, I'm not thinking evil. I'm giving you a future and a hope. Your initial reaction is, when did that happen? At what point did they really experience it? Certainly not at all in the lifetime of the people who were reading this prophecy from Jeremiah, certainly not in Jeremiah's lifetime. And again, I would argue that it's never been the same. The Romans, they were under the foot of the Romans, 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the whole city, destroyed the temple that Herod had built for them as the Romans were trying to kiss up to them. And ultimately, you know, then you get to all the way to 1948 when Israel is allowed because the world feels so guilty for letting six to eight million Jews be slaughtered. We're like, okay, we'll give you a strip of land that you guys used to have, but we're going to hold back this little part down in Gaza. We're going to hold the West Bank back, but yeah, you can actually be a nation. As much as that's, you know, it's something at least. But when you think of Jeremiah 29, 11, I don't want you to think that better days are right around the corner because they aren't. And now, if we look at the passage in context, again, just like with a couple weeks ago when we looked at Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You look at the context of the scripture and it says something quite a bit different than what you might have thought it looked. Well, here, this is the truth too. And so let's look, beginning with verse 4, to throw verse 11 into context, we'll look at verses 4 through verse so 14 or so. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, every phase of captivity, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Whoa. Wait a minute. You mean you caused us to be in this predicament? You caused us to be slaves? You caused us to be under the thumb of an evil dictator? That's what he said. So here's the thing. So I'm going to now, I'm going to rescue you. No, he goes, build houses and settle down and dwell in them. You're going to be here a while. Plant gardens and eventually fruit's going to come forth and you're going to eat of those gardens Take wives, beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. Wait a minute. So we're slaves. We're we're hearing from God. And what he's saying is, how do you like 
slavery. You better make the best of it. You better settle in. Start planting a field. Start building a house. Get yourself a job. Get your kids into Little League. You're not going anywhere for a while. And that's his kind of message. And then he says, this is even weirder in verse 7, and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Try to support the evil Babylonians who are now your oppressors. That's your advice? That's your word from the Lord? Nobody's going to be excited about that. I want to know how I can beat the Babylonians. And Jeremiah's like, nope. The best thing for you is for you to get along with them. The best thing for you is for you to find a way to fit in. For you to have your oppressors be at peace. Because if they're at war, it's going to make it worse for you. And they're going to blame you for it. So shut up. Keep your head down. Do life the best you can and live like you're going to be here a while because you are. And then he says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 8, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams, which you cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord." They're prophets, if you read on later in the chapter, it says that they were, they were moral dirtbags, they were, they were committing adultery, they were making false promises, they were ultimately telling people what they wanted to hear so that they could get a following, and they didn't care whether it was true or not. And he goes, look, thus says the Lord, verse 10, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good work toward you and cause you to return to this place. Yeah, eventually the day will come when you or at least your descendants will have an opportunity to come back to Israel. I'm not saying it's the same. But then he says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, says the Lord, and I'll bring you back, and so on. Remind you of the passage in Matthew 6.33 that Justin talked about last week, that if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. Now he's telling them, you know what? You need to not seek freedom not seek power, not seek where you can live, not seek when are these people going to be destroyed because the truth is one dictator gets knocked off, another one's going to come up. You still have to figure out how to live life. But he says, what you need to do is seek me. Your relationship with me is what matters. The other stuff is just details. It really doesn't matter. So, and he goes on to just, Blast the false prophets. The false prophets were telling them what they wanted to hear because that's what would sell. The false prophets would be very charming and make these grandiose promises. Oh, this says the Lord. We're almost out of here. We can do it. We can defeat. Yeah, the Babylonians ended up getting defeated. 
by the Medes and the Persians. They weren't any better at all. There, was no, there wasn't like, oh, you know, one of these days, the good people are going to rise up. It's not going to happen. So he says, here's my message. I want you to know you have a future and a hope if you seek me. If what you want to do is connect with me, then don't let this other stuff get in the way and crowd out what I want to do in your life. Because for many of and there were constantly those there in Babylon, some of the false prophets who were telling him, you know what? God is telling me that the Babylonians are going to be destroyed and we're going to be free and we're going to go back. And that message sells. It's still true today. The truth is, we are living in an evil world where people with all kinds of evil agendas are in charge. And they're doing awful things, okay? So my inclination is, how can I stop these evil people? And false prophets will tell you, oh yeah, all you need to do is vote. All you need to do is speak up. All you need to do is take a stand. And then we're going to destroy, you know, all of this evil. But the message from Jeremiah to them, and believe me, the Babylonians were every bit as evil as the weirdos that rule us today. And it's like, he's just going, no, it's not about defeating them. It's about you seeking me. And in the meantime, work within the system. Figure out how you can give your family and your friends, your community, the best thing possible. Can you bring peace to them? That is more important than you confronting and arguing with them. And so here's his message in a nutshell is, it's going to be a while. This is going to take a while. And you better be ready to be involved for the long haul in what God's going to do. And a part of that means you need to start making plans. How can I do the best I can within the structure of what's been given to me? I mean, that's why, like when COVID started and, you know, you can't have church meetings. I'm like, I didn't like stand up and go, we're going to do it anyway, you know, forget you. Um, But I, I thought, okay, we're going to have an online service, but I said, anybody who wants to come here, the doors will be open, and you can serve as a volunteer production assistant to sit here and laugh at my jokes, and it really helps the broadcast and service be better. Nobody can do anything about that. Nobody's going to, oh, you know, I never got fined by the government or anything. There's always a smarter way to go about something than challenging authority flat out. But it's like, figure out how can you have the best life that you can have, given the fact that most of what's going on in the field of power and politics is beyond your control. Now, God bless you if you believe that your calling is to reform the politics of the world. Have at it. Go for it. I would never tell you not to do it. But smart people realize life is short. So how can I give myself, my family, the people around me, the best life that they can have that doesn't depend 
on evil manipulative people becoming not evil and manipulative. Or that doesn't depend on finding the first politician ever who really you know, was humble and meant well. No, it's like, I think if we trade narcissists, you know, what we need is a different senile narcissist. That's gonna, it's like, it doesn't fix anything. How about going, you know what the truth is? I decide what I'm gonna do this week with my family. I decide how I'm gonna work within this structure. That's way more fruitful. And that's what he's telling him. And he goes, a part of that is get along with the leaders. Don't pick fights with leaders. Pray for the peace of your city. Pray that things will go well within your city. Work within the community. See, like, I see people who speak out and blah, 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 you know, ranting about God all the time. And it's fine. I might agree with what they're saying. But, you know, then I see somebody like uh, John Harbaugh, the coach of the Baltimore Ravens, who um, the other day after they got a big win in the playoffs, he got up there and he opened his Bible and he read a scripture that gave God all the glory. He goes, I'm going to say this before I say anything else. I'm like, I was, it made me a Ravens fan and I, and I can't stand Baltimore. But, you know, it's like, that's how it works. You go and you play the game and you give glory to God and you seek him and his glory and it opens up doors that you'd never see otherwise. The ranting and raving, well, we're going to turn this place around. No, that doesn't have the same kind of power as somebody who plays the game, even a game like football, and says, I'm going to find a way to give God glory within this. I guarantee that he impacted more people who desperately need to hear about hope when they hear that scripture. And I mean, just think of the people that live in that garbage city that all of a sudden have hope. I don't know if they're, they're going to win the Super Bowl or not, but there's a hope. And it's connected to somebody who believes in God. The more we extract ourselves from involvement with the culture, the more we pull out of everything the more we lose those opportunities to do what, what Jeremiah is telling them to do, to work toward bringing peace to your community, work toward having a positive impact, work toward earning the respect and, and the adoration of people who don't yet know God. And so putting because you have faith in him, now you have a future. Now you have hope. Now it's also... It comes down to seeking God. Am I personally seeking God? Now, at what point do I do things other than seek God? There is nothing other than seeking God. That's a full-time job. That has to be the agenda of my life, ultimately. So if I'm doing that, then I look at the world and I go, I think we're going to be here a while. I'm not going to tackle all the problems. I'm going to attack the problem that I have within me, and I'm going to do the best I can to be a good influence on those around me. I, but I'm going to work. I'm going to keep my life structured and organized. I'm, I'm going to be supportive. I'm going to pray for that which is going on around me, and I'm not going to listen to the voices of those phonies who are telling me things that they know aren't true, but they're telling me because they raise money by telling me those lies. That if enough of us 
I, again, I, I rant about it all the time. Sorry if I rant about it too much, but I get text messages between first and second service. I got text messages from seven different politicians who want me to believe that if I can send them some money, they're going to turn this around. And it's like, great. And put my faith in that. Put my faith that somehow Steve Garvey's going to become a, you know, elected in California, for crying out loud. And yet, I could run away. I could go move to Idaho or Texas or Nashville or some godforsaken place. And, <laughs> and then, like, you look at where we live, you look at today, today, yesterday, it's like the most beautiful place that God put us. And we're like, no, I'd rather go shovel snow. <laughs> because that's how I'm going to make my life better. No, you let go of, you go, here I am. God's put me where I am. And no offense to those of you who are watching online from, <laughs> from those hillbilly states. But it's like, if they could be, if they were able to handle living in Babylon successfully, impacting their communities, raising their families. I think we can do that. I think that's something that's, as long as we're seeking him and glorifying him, but we need to quit listening to the salesmen. We need to quit listening to the liars and the hucksters, i.e. politicians. And, and then we need to start going, you know what? I just realized I am an exile. I am like the old song said, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Or like Larry Norman saying, uh, don't blame me, I'm only visiting this planet. You know, this isn't home. I'm an exile. How do I do the best I can in exile? And ultimately, I need a future and a hope. I have one. It's what Paul told, told Titus, you're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm looking for him to show up. Yeah, ultimately, that's the end of exile for all of us. But in the meantime, I'm going to be faithful where God has called me to be, and I'm going to be living for the hope. Now, think about this. How can he give you a future and a hope? You can't have a future unless you believe in the future. You don't have a future now. In fact, how can you ultimately have hope? You only have it now. See, once you get to heaven, you don't have hope anymore. But hope is something that you can have right now, and it's worth more than all of the fortunate twists and turns that might happen in life. It's worse than, you know, that hope is something that come, overcomes everything else. And you can have it now as long as you understand. I'm seeking him. He is at work. I trust him. My life is tied in with his. And so I realize I'm an exile. I'm going to do the best I can while I'm in exile. I'm going to be the best exiled person I can be because I have a future and a hope. I understand. Now, I think where Christians started really getting heavily involved in politics was back in the so-called moral majority days, which was driven by people who believed in something called post-millennialism. 
Postmillennialism, you know, we have premillennialism, which is me. You can, you don't have to believe that. You're welcome to be wrong. But um, <laughs> that means that, you know, Jesus is going to come and then set up his kingdom. I also believe in the rapture that comes before the tribulation, before that, but that's a whole other subject. But there are people who are all millennials. They don't believe there's actually a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. They believe we're in the millennium now, that he is the king. That was the doctrine of the Catholic Church and, and Presbyterians and a lot of others. But then there was post-millennialism, and this, which is, is pretty much almost died out completely, but people like Pat Robertson and those like that, were they believed that if we get involved in fixing the political system, then we will usher in the kingdom. God is waiting for us to take charge so that he can return. And so as a result, it's like everything all became about how do we get this, you know, how do we reform society? But Jesus wasn't obsessed with that. Paul wasn't obsessed with that. James, John, none of them, Peter, none of them were obsessed with that because they understood we're here, we're exiles, we're not supposed to change that. He's going to change it. He is our hope. And today I have a, a complete hope that Jesus is going to come back and fix all this. And I'm not going to be a winner until he does. I'm going to be a survivor. And I'm going to do all that I can do to make the most of my situation and my opportunities. And I would love to be such a good witness that people would go, I don't know about the crazy stuff you believe, but I have to admit, you've helped our community. You're a nice person. You surprise me. You're not like pointing your finger at me and screaming. That's what I want to be. And that's ultimately what Jeremiah 20, 29, 11 is about. God is saying to them, look, I know what I'm thinking about you. It's not bad stuff. It's good stuff. I want to give you a future. I want you to know that someday all of this will be taken care of and I want to give you hope. I want you to have the sense that right now all I have is hope, but I'm not hoping in something in the immediate. If I'm an exile and my descendants and my grand descendants and everybody, if they're all exiles for another thousand years, that doesn't change my hope because this world is not going to be set free from sin until Jesus returns to it. And that's the hope that I have. And that gives me the perspective. So now I'm not fighting for something temporal. I am making the best of a situation where it's eternal. And I think as soon as we start thinking that how can we withdraw from society or how can we take over society, we miss this truth. We end up delusional like these prophets who were, and he goes on and describes the prophets. They were all committing adultery and raising money, and people really liked them. They were super popular, had a big following, and, and they were telling him, you can do this. And he's like, no, the truth is, you're right where I want you to be right now. So put your kids in Little League, you know, settle down, get a job, build a house, do the best you can with your life, Make a difference one person at a time in your community because you have hope. Because everyone else out there, they don't have hope. They're scared to death. They are thinking that, oh no, 
global warming's going to destroy us all. I'm not worried about that. I mean, they, they, and they may make my car so that it'll, it won't drive over 75 or, how stupid, you know? But I'm not paranoid about that. I'm not like campaigning and I'll be fine driving 75. It's, it's been a while, but you know. <laughs> it's like, we don't panic. We're like, it's gonna be fine. I don't expect anybody in government and I don't expect society, I don't expect the press, I don't expect anybody else to agree with me. But I have hope that's alive and I'm looking for the return of my savior and that allows me to make the best of whatever it is I'm dealing with right now. And that's the heart of Jeremiah, this old crusty guy writing a letter from Jerusalem to those who are in exile and telling them not what they wanted to hear, but telling them the truth. And the truth would give them a better life now and a better perspective on the future. And that's true for us as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word from from your word. We all want a good future and hope but we want to follow you in the way that you say will give that to us. And we don't want a good future in the future. We want to have a sense of the future now. Be citizens of heaven here and now. And to have a hope that's alive because you aren't, we aren't just waiting and hoping that you show up. You live within us and you've given us a living hope and we thank you for that. Lord, if there are people here who are just wearing themselves out trying to fix the world, let them know it's going, to be, it's going to be a while. So how about you make the best of the opportunities that God has presented before you instead of being so delusional that you think that you're the one that's going to bring down the Babylonians or the Medes or the Persians or the Romans or whoever the next loser takes over is. Lord, May they understand you're the king of the universe. You are the creator of us all. And our end is assured if we've just simply trusted in you and received the gift of eternal life. If there's someone who hasn't made that decision, Lord, help them to know, I better start with that. Without receiving you, there's no future. There's no hope. We would just become completely lost in depression and nihilism. Help us to latch on to our future and hope that comes when we seek you with all of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.